Hello, everybody. This is Devin with the Lonely Mountain Mystics. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to issue a couple disclaimers. The first is that this episode was recorded on March 8th, 2020, right as we were starting to get news of the impending pandemic and what was coming our way. Because of some of the topics that Paul and I discuss and our black humor that we use with situations, I felt like it was great to hold off on releasing this episode until after things had started to calm down and as a country we started to turn the corner. There's also some heavier topics here. And that was another reason why we felt it was good to wait. With the heaviness of the pandemic and not knowing what was going to happen and the uncertainty of everything, including uh, the riots, the marches, the protests, with everything that was going on, we just felt like this was a really good idea to wait because of some of the heavier topics that we're going to be discussing. So I also want to take a moment to issue a trigger warning. As we get into discussions of physical violence, sexual violence, and the harmful natures that those can have. I wanted to leave these pieces of the conversation in because I felt that it was really important to ultimately the message and a lot of the things that Paul and I both gained from the conversation. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to my friend Paul and invite you to be a part of this episode. Thank you so much for joining. Hey guys, welcome to Lonely Mountain Mystics. This is Devin. I am here with Pastor Paul Bergman out of California. Paul, if uh, you wouldn't mind, just tell me a little bit about yourself. So, yeah, I've been in ministry 32 years, 22 years as a pastor, 10 years uh, initially as an evangelist, and it's the last thing in the world I'd ever thought I'd be, the last thing in the world. So tell me about those first 10 years. What is that? What is an evangelist versus okay. a pastor? Well, the, the setup to that is my parents were immigrants. I was raised in a loving non-religious home in the sense that my dad was an agnostic. My mom had a very simple belief. They had, you know, she had a language barrier, so she was always home, and we never went to church. Uh, but she, she did watch some TV preachers, and she got basically out of that what she got was the message of Jesus' love. And that was something that was dear to her heart, and she was the first universalist I've ever met. Uh, and that's probably because she never got discipled or, you know, into heavy Bible <laughs> studies and all that stuff. She was safe in her home and she loved Jesus. She had a real love for Jesus. And it was a really, she was a beautiful, gracious, amazing mom and, and woman. Uh, so that was my upbringing. I uh, played college football at UCLA, met my wife, played the pros. And in the pros, uh, I started to tech, uh, going to chapels on Sunday. They would have a chapel speaker, you know, chaplain. And so I wasn't anti-religious at all. I was like, yeah, that'd be cool, you know, because I thought maybe it'd be fun to go to church or something. I'd never gone to church. Kathy and I had gotten married, but Sundays I was playing, right? So that ain't happening. But then on the off season, I, I said, Kathy, let's go to a church. And we started the church. We picked a community church. I thought that was easy, right? Well, it turned out it was a five-point Calvinist, fundamentalist, <laughs> reformed theology to the core. And I bit it. I bit and I became a completely different human being. And uh, I, I just became this fundamentalist nightmare, you know, telling my mom, the most gracious, loving woman in the world, that she's going to hell and going to burn for eternity because she's not believing she needs to study the Bible. And yeah, so that was it. I, and I was all in, you know, I was at, at one point I was like, so on fire i wanted to go kill an abortion doctor in carlsbad because i thought that would be really cool you know that that would be a way to martyr myself and show how committed i am uh so i became this wild guy so then of course i said like oh i want to go into ministry and uh i had an opportunity with a very fundamentalist ministry to start doing evangelism and using my background as a former athlete as a basis and that when i when i went into that well I just fell in even deeper uh, and deeper and deeper. So we had these outreaches. We did some really tricky stuff using the football stuff to try to like go into public schools and try to convert kids to followers of Jesus and have them say the sinner's prayer. And I, I would go into a town and just wreck the town, you know, 
people would just be up in arms. But all the you know the Christian fundies would think I'm just the greatest thing in the world. And how many check marks for Jesus did we get from the kids? And and then I started going to Washington D.C. And I got to remember once I was a guest speaker at a couple of big one in Washington D.C. at uh, Alec, it's super conservative pack, American Legislation Legislative Executive Council. And as a keynote speaker, a room of like 600 people in there, and I've got them frothing at the mouth. I'm, you know, I'm throwing the gays in hell. I'm throwing public education in hell. I'm throwing Democrats in hell. And I was really, I found I was really good at it. And and so I, I became kind of like, hey, this is, I was like, man, he's the guy. That was the fundamentalist guy. Uh, and then I think what started was we did an outreach to Catholic schools because they're all going to hell. You know, the Pope's a whore of Babylon. But we would falsely befriend these Catholic schools and communities so that I could get in there. Uh, but what often happened is I ended up being housed by somebody related to the school. And sometimes it was one of the brothers. Sometimes it was one of the fathers. Uh, uh, if it was Franciscan or uh, whatever. Uh, we would and I, or stay in homes. And I started meeting these really wonderful people with these unbelievable hearts for people. Yeah. And I'm like, this guy's going to hell, you know? And then I, there's cracks started happening. And then one guy gave, gave me a book to read by Brennan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And Brennan Manning, who was influential in my life, and I'm glad to say I got to meet several times before he passed, he kind of, he just kind of called the bullshit on me. And I was like, this is, this. And, and that's when the deconstruction started. And that led me out of the evangelism. But ironically, I had been ordained and I went into uh, pastoring. And I got this pastorship. I've been here 22 years. And, but during the 22 years, my, my deconstruction continued. So they were, when we met, we met at a place where I was more like a, uh, I wasn't a hardcore fundamentalist. I was more like a saddleback, you know, Rick Warren kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that kind of thing. And, and was, was more open and they liked that, but it continued. And what happened is that Renan Manning reintroduced me to Jesus. I, I, I lost Jesus, Jesus in the church. And uh, ironically, it was outside of the church that I found Jesus. And then I tried to bring Jesus back to the church. And that was a big problem. That was a big problem. Yeah. So, the, the first 10 years here were uh, 51% of the people were kind of digging my questions and, and cause that's really what it was mostly questioning, you know, questioning the death penalty, questioning, you know, American exceptionalism, questioning the nuclear bomb, questioning things as I got more progressive uh, against the backdrop of, you know, really what, what, what's Jesus opinion of these things that we can, try to find them. And, uh, you know, so I removed the flag and from the, from the pulpit and, oh my God, so you can imagine that started the thing. And, but it was about 51% that wanted to, uh, maybe support me or at least listen to me. And probably 49%, almost down, split down the middle that wanted to burn me at the stake after every service. So it was, it was raucous, man. And it was, uh, it was a train wreck until we had a big church split about 10 years in. And uh, when that happened, it was the greatest thing that ever could have happened, right? Because all the angry fundamentalists went and started an angry fundamentalist church. And I could continue my 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 road. And it was never ever that I like begged for my job. As a matter of fact, it would have been merciful at many times if they would have fired me. And I told them that. You can fire me. I'm not here to cause trouble. I just can't not be honest in who I am. I got, I got to tell you with what I'm struggling with. And, uh, and, and that's last 12 years slid into a totally different area. And I've continued in my deconstruction to the point where now I identify openly as an agnostic pastor, which simply true to the term, meaning I don't know. There's so much. I just don't know. I have, I have a deep affinity for Jesus and for the teachings of Jesus. I focused on that. I got away from, uh, you know, the Bible infallibility, uh, uh, you know, just, which was, of course, a huge thing. And, uh, and it's inspired 
and those kind of things. I really started to question the Bible. I read intensely through this period and studied intensely with a lot of people that when I was a fundamentalist, I wasn't allowed to read or listen to and actually found out like the people at Yale and <laughs> and Harvard Divinity School actually are bringing some really interesting things to the table. They're pretty well educated. So in, in that deconstruction through it, my love for Jesus is still there. My affinity towards his teachings, primarily of making the world, the tikkun the, the olam, the, the reparation of the world. I mean, this is what I learned so much when I started studying Judaism. Didn't think they ended up you know, having some friends that are great friends that have synagogues and we'd meet and we'd teach and, you know, liberal, liberal Jews, obviously, but I was now becoming a much more open-minded Christian and grew through the knowledge uh, and began to see again clearer and clearer what Jesus was doing on earth and trying to replicate that. So I got women into leadership. Women weren't allowed to preach, teach, or be on the elder board. I, I had uh, I opened us up to the LGBTQ community, um, and and that was amazing. You know, I, I, it was just an amazing response uh, from that. I scratched the whole missions board. No more going out to save savages in Africa with the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, we're not. We're not doing that. So we went totally to relief work and supporting digging wells, building homes, doing tangible medical uh, uh, assistance, supporting those kind of humanitarian things. And we continued on this role. And I, I just became super proactive in the last 12 years in my own community. And I don't mean my church community, but where I live, in helping those that are marginalized and those that are on the fringe and under-resourced and... And, I, and that's when I got the idea, like, you know what I really hate? I hate this fucking building. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate this building. Why do we have a building? And next thing I know, I'm like, we don't need a building. I don't need to be fixing plumbing and resurfacing parking lots and getting new roofs. And I don't want to be taking people's money for that. So uh, turned out I had a, I, I decided to sell the church. And we had been hosting a, a charter school for about seven years, a public charter school. Before that, we had a Christian school, which was a fucking nightmare. Let me tell you, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. It was unbelievable. I don't. I got too many stories of what a nightmare that was. But we got rid of them finally, and we got the public school in there. And I'm like, yes. Uh, and and it started when I pulled my kids out of the Christian school. I couldn't take it anymore. And that was like, wait a minute, you can't not have your own kids in your. In your in your own school, I'm like, no, it's not happening. So yeah, uh, so we got the charter school in there, and then I put the, the building up for sale, and uh, and they came back because they were looking to buy property and build a building, and they're like, we love it here, we'll buy it. So we gave them a killer deal. They bought it. All I do is go there on Sundays now. We use the same spot. We took the seven figures and invested it. And it created a investment portfolio and interest income for us. We don't take offerings. We don't ask people for money. Ah, it's so good, man. The church has churned into really a charity where we happen to meet on Sundays, a, a bunch of open people. We commune around meals. We commune around each other. We look out for each other. We, uh, all questions are allowed. I have Hindus that come usually every first of, of the month because that's when we have an open community meal share. And they come and they bring their vegan food and they fellowship with us. And I had a guy, Jeff, I just talked to him the other day. He's out in Texas. He moved like four years ago. But he was in the church for years. They had the best attendance. And then he's leaving. I'm so sad to see him leave. because you know, I'm an atheist, don't you? And I'm like, no, I had, I had no idea. I had no idea. And, and, uh, <laughs> And it's kind of funny because now in my deconstructions, he's in the last four years, he's become more preachy than I am. You know, he starts, <laughs> starts sending, he's, he's always sending me all these things. And I've never had more fun. All I do is help people get into halfway houses and rehab food, groceries, keep them run a homeless shelter, help people with microloans. Because in our community, the rent is so hard and, the, and there's so few places available. So somebody loses a rental space here, 
they're immediately with, threatened with homelessness because they have been living hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. And while they can make for eight years straight the rent, they can't come up with a first and last. So they're living in their cars. And I'm like, no, we can give you a microloan now, zero interest, wow. help you get into that unit. I am the most beloved pastor in the community of Ojai. I am the most loathed pastor in the Christian community of Ojai. I am, <laughs> I am the heretic. I am the quote-unquote Pied Piper leading people to hell. And, uh, but it's been with a big smile on my face. <laughs> That's so interesting because, you know, when you look at, like, the life of Jesus, um, he was also leading people down the wrong path and was spending time with the wrong people. And yeah, it was all they, about they doing the folks. wrong things. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they, killed, they killed him. They didn't kill him because he was a nice <laughs> yeah. guy. And it's just interesting that, like, you're also in a very similar lifestyle, uh, making religious people upset like Jesus did, but you're also taking care of like your community. You're taking care of, um, you know, the homeless, you're taking care of the mentally ill. Uh, and I, what I like about it, cause you know, I also listen to your sermons and stuff like that. But one of the things that I really enjoy hearing is that you don't seem to be trying to be the salvation figure to those people. What it sounds like you're really doing is just being a great middleman. Like, what do you need to get from point A to point B? No, yeah, it's indiscriminate. Yeah, there's there's no strings attached. There's no, you know, invites you to the Bible study thing going on. That just, that doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, which is so funny. You know, I got rid of like discipleship programs because when I first got there, we were kind of running the Wick, Rick Warren model, you know, first base, second base, third base. And God, it was, it's just so funny to me now when I think back about that. You know, we would literally have elder meeting units about because because I started attracting more and more of a nuanced crowd, more of a like I said, the, the people that, that my heart was after and cared for the people that were marginalized. Right. And they would like literally say, you're not attracting good giving units, mm. the giving units, you know, because they'd have it all charted financially on what people are giving and you're attracting too many people that aren't giving, but they're taking. And I'm like. Yeah, yeah. The people who need help. what I'm freaking trying to do exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to help people that need help. Yeah, to have a place to come to for help and not to get them plugged in. Yeah, you know, and get them tithing and all that. It was just like it's nutty. But I've never had more fun though. I mean, I've, I've never felt fuller in my heart. And you know, and now when somebody wants to give money and they do, I used to hate asking for money. You know, the elders would always give me, you know, like. You got to be better with the offering. You know, you gotta, you're not laying it down, you know, thick enough. You're yeah. not, I'm like, it's just not in me. Uh, it, uh, but now I don't even mind asking people for money because, like, it goes 100% to helping somebody. Yeah. It's like, I, and it's wonderful. I have like a guilt free conscience. You want to do Awesome. Because that's going to put a heroin addict in rehab that otherwise will not be able to go in. So, uh, so that's a gas, you know, I had a lot of fun doing that. Well, and one of the challenges that I see is that I, you know, um, I will end up hearing about pastors or about churchgoers, really well-meaning individuals who want to help. And because they want to help, they end up way in over their heads. I mean, I, I remember my wife and I at one point were having a hard time after our kids were born because our kids were born about 13 months apart up here in New England where we don't really have any family, didn't have any real support, exhausted. You know, if my wife needed to go to the doctor, I had to take off work so I could stay at home with the kids so she could go to the doctor, you know, things like that. And it was, we were really exhausted and worn thin. Exhausted is the word. Yeah. Man. And so we were, we had a, a church couple who they mentored us uh, and we loved them. They would pray for us. They'd come babysit the kids so we could go out. Well, one day they decided to kind of do like an impromptu counseling session with us. And it went real bad, like just really bad. Because, not because of the fact that they weren't loving people, but because of the fact that they weren't, they're not trained counselors. And my wife and I, with our trauma history, we need trained counselors and we are big proponents of counseling. Me In fact, too. My wife is a counselor. Absolutely. And so what I love hearing about the stories is that it's not that you're trying to 
go out and fix the world, but you're also, you need to get into rehab, let's get you into rehab. You need to get into counseling, let's, let's get, get you, you into, into counseling. counseling. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I'm a listening ear. I spend a lot of time with people. I finally kind of like discovered like, wow, having this, now I'm, you know, almost 60, you, you actually do pick up some things. <laughs> you actually do <laughs> learn something. And when I think of counseling, when I was counseling as a Christian pastor, it, it could not been have been more horrific. You know, I mean, I, when I think back, uh, I'm glad I evolved quickly. You know, I remember one of my quick evolutions there was on divorce because pretty much the elder board was like, divorce is a sin, blah, blah, blah. Only in you know, case of pornography or infidelity, one of those types of things. And I had this church leader and his wife come to me for counseling, right? And he was like Mr. Church Leader, and she wasn't coming to church. And then they came to me for marital counseling. And I would just sit there and listen to them eviscerate each other. I mean, I'd maybe ask one question, and they tear each other apart. I'd listen to them individually. I'd listen to them together. And at one session together, while they're just goring each other, I'm like, why are you guys married? And they both looked at me shocked and said, because we're Christians. And I'm like, good God. Like literally, I tell them, like, good God, please don't think you're doing God some kind of favor right now. Please, for the love of God, get divorced. Get on with your lives. I think it's the only time probably in the last 33 years they agreed about something. <laughs> they both thought I was crazy. They both thought I was now a complete heretic because I said, stop this, stop this insanity, you know? Um, but yeah, before that, I would have been with like, well, you know, did he cheat on you? Did she cheat on you? Well, no, then you've got to work on it and stick it through and blah, blah, blah. And you need to get biblical counseling. Now I'm like, no. You know, that's like anything. People come to me and they're in trouble. Oh, Pastor Paul, I'm in trouble and I need a good Christian lawyer. I'm like, no, you don't. Don't get a Christian lawyer. That's like the worst. Get a great lawyer. Maybe it's a Christian. Maybe it's a Christian. Maybe it's a Jew. Maybe it's an atheist. But with what you got going on, you need good legal counsel. And that's why I am pragmatically with healthcare because I deal with a lot of people in a because there's just no resources. When it comes to mental health care. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of the families that I work with on the margins have some profound mental health issues. Somehow, some way in the family, whether it's the husband or the kids or a kid or the parent or whatever. Uh, and they need they need help and they need access. So I try to create access for, for real professional counseling. That's really cool. Again, I like the connection between, you know, bridging the gap, getting somebody from point A to point B, um, and how can we go and meet people where they're at. And I just think it's interesting that now that you are impacting your community more and more, you are uh, quite literally being the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, religious people are liking you less and less. Oh, it's and hilarious. It's hilarious. Yeah. Is there all, you know, you know oh, he, Pastor Paul, he's just a work salvation guy. He's just trying to. He's just trying to earn his salvation. I'm like, I don't. I you know, and I would tell him, I don't even know what salvation is anymore. <laughs> Apparently, this person needs some help. You know, but it's just, yeah, it's really funny. It tends to make him even more angry. You know, every time something about me is positive in the community, or they bump into somebody I've helped who tells what a great pastor I am, and they're like, no, no, no. He doesn't believe in the Bible. He doesn't believe in creationism. Um, and, oh, yeah, it's just, it's, and they come back to me going like, holy cow. You know, so it's a real turnoff to them. I mean, as well, unfortunate, well, unfortunately, because I would never want them to get involved with that. But if it works for you, fine. I'm not trying to convert anybody. I'm not trying to uh, take down anybody's church or stop anybody's ministry. I'm just there to catch people. Uh that have been abused spiritually. Many of those have. I have one young man at my church that he's got profound mental health issues. Uh, he also happens to be gay. And when I encountered him, he was directed towards me because the churches that he had been in done exorcisms on him, 
uh, told him he was demon possessed. Oh my God! Drove him literally to suicide in mental health wards. Oh my God! Did tell somebody with a profound mental illness that they're gay because the devil's in them and they're going to hell. This was unbelievable. The pain that this guy was in, and uh, but he's doing much better today. He came to church today with his boyfriend, and they're sitting on the couch together, and it's really cool, you know. And and he's he's come so far. He's doing so much better than he was and i consider him not just a close friend but almost like a son and we talk every single day it's, it helps his mental health every day we converse that's what i enjoy doing one of the things that i like that you're talking about with like the works salvation piece of it i so i grew up in as we as i shared with you in like a rather evangelical background when i was in the evangelical background and i've, I've talked about this numerous times but we were saved by faith but faith without works was dead Right. So how do you know that your faith was real if you're not doing the work? And so for me, it was looking at like the fruit of the spirit. You know, I want to make sure I'm doing, I'm peaceful. I want to make sure that I'm not drinking, doing drugs. I'm not doing, uh, you know, sex before marriage. But if it's not sex, everything else is okay though. Um, and doing all kinds of like really rule following because I, I wanted to know that I what that my faith was working itself out. These works were the only way to see and measure that. So it was almost like this idea was kind of talking out of both sides of its mouth, right? We're saved right. by faith alone, but your faith without works is dead. And so if you aren't doing works, it clearly means that your faith isn't alive in you. Right. And so I was sitting there trying, the metaphor that I use to describe it is it's like going up to a tree and nailing a bunch of apples to the tree from a distance it looks like an apple tree but as you get closer you realize all you're doing is killing the tree and you're not actually making any real fruit of any worth it's just a, a tree that's dying and the fruit is rotting from the inside out it's quite tragic really yeah and so then whenever i a few years ago right before my son was born i was the happiest i've ever been I've struggled with uh, depression, suicidal thoughts, you know, eating disorders, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, but at this point in my life, it was the happiest moment of my life. And as soon as it started to like come down, I immediately called up a counselor and was like, I don't want to ruin this. And I let go of trying to do the works, trying to fix myself, trying to put my emotional baggage in a headlock, trying to, you know, beat down my doubt. And I just decided to focus on my own personal health, my own mental health, my own spiritual health. And to me, it was like, I looked away from the fruit and I just started focusing on the roots of the tree. Nice. And the more that I did that, the more that the fruit began to come and it's still there. It's not like I ever stopped, you know, giving to the church or giving to the poor or doing nice deeds, so to speak. But I'm showing more fruit now that when I describe salvation, it sounds much more works-based. But it's, it's a byproduct of the positive mental health. Because just like you would with any tree, any plant, you take care of the roots and the fruit nice. comes naturally. Nice. That is so beautiful. Yeah. And, it, and it's funny how that happens. Yeah. I used to be an evangelist. I don't try to convert anybody. And I think I've had more actual conversions <laughs> in, in, in my yeah. life. I mean, when I mean conversions, I mean people who have like grown to love Jesus and have this desire to be a better healed human being. And it's, it's really, I got this one guy, his mom thought I would maybe be able to connect to him 20, 20 years ago. And uh, he was a meth addict, bad addict. And mom says, he's always high. And I said, tell him that Pastor Paul says he can come to church high. I don't care. So he came to church the first time, and he was high. I'm like, it's totally fine, John. Come on in. He came, and, you know, he liked me. We started to contact each other. I found out he played music and the guitar. So we, uh, I stuck him in the choir because he liked to sing. The choir wasn't happy about <laughs> Because he hadn't earned, he hadn't, he hadn't earned his way in. <laughs> so I'm gonna get him up there, and he's singing, and I finally plays guitar. I have him do some music for us. He'd be even high doing it. Right? I've had a lot of music leaders high. I'm not even joking you. <laughs> had this one homeless dude named Kenny that was a bad heroin addict, and but man, could he could play the guitar, and he was busking, and I, he ended up leading worship for like six six months at the church. It was awesome. It was just, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. awesome. And uh, so, so John, 
says to me he wants to get well. And I'm like, great, you know, what can I do to help? You know, rehab. So we got him to rehab. John gets well, he gets sober. He's coming to church. He was uh, grown up with a very fundamentalist background himself, but he was starting to deconstruct. Uh, meets this great gal, 12 step, and starts dating her. And she's an atheist, starts bringing her to church. She's like, I'm an atheist, man. I don't care. You're with John. You're my friend. John loves you. Can't wait to get to know you. So she starts coming. She's really digging it. Next thing I know, she comes. They come for counseling because she's now pregnant. And they don't know what to do. But they honestly don't. I'm like, well, I, I don't know how I can help you. But I support whatever you choose to do. And they're like, well, you know, I think we're going to have the child. I'm like, great. We're here for you. Whatever I can do. So she gets pregnant. I don't know, maybe six months later, she comes to my office one day. It's when I still had an office. And she says, you know, can I just go sit in the in the sanctuary for a while? I'm like, absolutely. You know, I didn't ask her, you know, what's the matter? Which and just sure. Sat in there. And then she came up afterwards to my office. She goes, Thank you. She goes, you know what? She goes, I think I just prayed for the first time. And I think something heard me. Wow. And I'm like, well, good, you know? Mm. So next thing you know, she wants to get baptized. Wow. So I got this unwed pregnant woman. And then they have this beautiful child, just this wonderful daughter. Then they come to me and they're like, you know what? We love each other so much. We want to get married. Will you marry us? I'm like, yeah. Everything was asked backwards, right? It wasn't. <laughs> don't live together and don't have sex with each other. Get married first. Then you have a child. Then you bet that it's just like, they are amazing. They're just an amazing trio. I look at them for 20 years. I'm just like, wow, look at that family. Look at, look at where that came from. And it came with not trying to do anything. Wow. That's where the fruit, the fruit could actually grow. Yes. And that's where like, you know, growing up in the church, if somebody got a divorce in a lot of churches, they're no longer welcome to serve because, because they send now their faith's it doesn't matter anymore. I at one point was serving vacation Bible school. At the time I was, you know, in a heavy metal band. So I had black nail polish. As you can see, I got some earrings and stuff like that and jewelry. And uh, one of the kids, elders, children goes, my daddy told me you're a fag. Oh my God. It was one of those things that like, I would watch that. We would say faith is what saved us. But if you didn't act a certain way, if you didn't look a certain way, if you didn't you know, dress or sound a certain way, you automatically didn't fit into the country club anymore. And the crazy thing about that is what I found out, because I was born in the big city. So I went to UCLA. The church that we started going to when I first started going to church was a mega church. It was big, massive. You know, you didn't really get to know people. Not saying that they weren't, you know, legitimate into their own kind or whatever. But I'm just saying, it was just a really big, this is a small town. Here's the funny thing. I know everybody's in this town. <laughs> and, and I knew it. And I knew it in my own church, you know? And it would be like crazy stuff. I was like freaking out. I was freaking out. I knew what was going on behind closed doors. You know, I had this one elder die. He was an elder emeritus. He was like considered the second coming of Jesus. And he dies. I'm already starting to deconstruct. His family doesn't want me to do the funeral, wants the other fundamentalist pastor to do it. I'm like, okay, do the funeral. Then they want to name one of the buildings after him, right? And that's when I got a letter from one of the daughter's friends. Like, this is what he has done to his daughter. And I'm like, oh, God, that's why she's so jacked up, mm. you know? And here we are going to name a building out. I had that happen. I had this one woman come into our foyer with her daughter. I mean, she was a grown-up. One of the elders thought it was great to hang all the former pastor's pictures on the wall, right? And this girl walks in in the foyer, and she turns white as a ghost. The mom walks her out, comes back to me. I'm so sorry. We heard so many nice things about you. My daughter wanted to try to give church a chance again because of that. But she just saw the picture of the guy that used to rip her in youth group. God. And I'm like going, oh my God. Uh, it, it was just like, this is nuts. And I knew stuff that was going on. And he's coming to me angry that I'm having a harvest fest because it sounds a lot like Halloween. 
And I'm like, oh, wow, you've got bigger issues, buddy, you know? But that's the craziness of the church. And that's also left me, I'll be honest, I'm doing much better today. I was very disillusioned, very bitter about Christianity. I still am. I mean, I look at the Trump syndrome of Christianity, right? I don't, I don't get that. And I don't consider myself a Democrat or a Republican. God, in my life, I've voted Republican more times ever than Democrat. Just Trump being who he is and now being lifted up as like the second coming of Jesus is completely insane to me. I don't even, I don't even know what to do with it. And so I have two things I'm deconstructing. You know, my parents came as immigrants. My dad was the classic, got here with nothing, made a life for himself and his family and provide. He lived, he, he lived out as an immigrant, the, the, the American dream, very patriotic as I was growing up. But then, you know, you start to learn like, you know, the Indians really weren't savages. And you know what? We really broke a lot of treaties. And you know what? We really put them into concentration camps. And you know what? We had slavery. And churches, you know, back that. People preaching Abraham Lincoln. Same Bible, same God, two different completely worldviews. And that deconstruction is continuing for me now as a grown-up man, a father of four, watching my kids grow up in this country. That deconstruction also carries over to what was Christianity. And, and in that sense, I don't consider myself a Christian anymore at all. Agnostic, I'm a lover of Jesus. I, I love to dig into his teachings, the good ones and the bad ones. And now I can differentiate. I can actually say, I don't think Jesus ever said that. It's way too inconsistent with this. Whereas you couldn't do that with the word of God, right? The infallible word of God. Yeah. Where I can go like, you know what? I call bullshit on that. I'm enjoying studying the Bible. I know more about it than I ever have in my life. Actually know more about it. Not, not just fundamentalist perspectives from Moody Bible Institute, but <laughs> scho scholarship, you know, about it. And yeah. that scholarship is fascinating to me. And it speaks so deeply to who we are as human beings in 2020, because so many of the same challenges we're having now, they had there. And what we're reading is not a, the word of God, but words about God mm. by people trying to figure out what's going on in their existential crisis of this world and living in it. Yeah. And so the Bible to me now, fascinating. Love, I love it, but it's not what it was. I want to talk a little bit about the depression of what it was like when you first started deconstructing. Tell me a little bit more about that. I was very disillusioned. And with that, people that I had as a pastor poured my life into for a decade, people who I was there in the middle of the night when the kid got in a car accident, I was there to baptize their children. I was there to help them in their marriages and see reconciliation and see some really good things that I literally poured, that I thought were friends. Like, forget the pastor things. Like, I don't even consider myself a pastor anymore. I, I really don't. But it's what people call me. I'm, I'm just another person, a human being. Who cares? And that's enough. But because I liked Rob Bell, endorsed Rob Bell, liked his book, Love Wins, ghosted me overnight. And I mean, not just by not going to church, but just, we used to have dinners together. We used to go to movies, I see them in a grocery store, and they turn the other way and walk away. Mm. And, it, and this happened in this small town over and over and over. And I was just blown away, realizing that I was never their friend. I was their pastor. And as long as I was theologically sound by their standards, I was an asset to their life. Other than that, I, I was a, a heretic. The friends that I have now, there's a lot of people still from those days that are there. They're my real friends, I found out. They're, they're real friends. And I can say I've had a few people who have left, very few, but a few who maintain friendship with me. And even though, I mean, genuinely, I believe, still care about me and love me, and we still can talk and commune and be together without them thinking I'm the devil. But that, that's psychologically devastating. It, I, it was so depressing. It was so hurtful. Not just for me, but I had to see it in my wife and see it in my kids and wondering why so-and-so doesn't come by anymore. And, you know, I, outside of that depression, I have clinical depression. You know, I've, I, I suffer from CTE. We know that now. I took a lot of concussions, an unbelievable amount of concussions 
in my athletic career, starting before playing high school collegiate and professional football. So I can get these very heavy manic depressive modes that trigger me and, and I slide. I have to fight through that. I'm very open about that. I mean, one of the, one of the persons that helped me was that was Rob Bell. Mm. I was battling depression. And I was listening to Rob Bell one day over at Mars Hill uh, talking about the therapist he sees. And I'm like, what the fuck? Did he just say, did he just <laughs> it's say okay to do that? He sees a therapist? I was like, what? Yeah. What? You know? Yeah. And I was like, and when I first, yeah, that was really funny when I first went to my therapist and I'm sitting outside at the office in the waiting area and I'm like, oh, this is what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> you know but it was also my salvation my freedom you know and and many people would get upset like hey i'm on medication for it oh you should trust jesus alone i'm like no i'm taking medicine and i get vaccinations sorry there. You know? <laughs> this coronavirus i'm gonna get the vaccination as soon as it comes out you know i'm not trusting jesus uh <laughs> I'm washing my I'm washing my god hands like like OCD right now because I can't get this thing. I have a compromised immune system, and uh, yeah, so uh, so so everything's changed, but but for the better, not without complications. Because when you deconstruct, it can be very devastating. Life becomes really challenging, especially if a brain like mine, because all of a sudden, all these questions I couldn't ask, I could ask. And still not have satisfactory answers to. As an empath, and I am an empath, and living in the age that we live in with more information than ever, because my heart for the for the poor and homeless and it's overwhelming at times. You know, it's you could fall into that literal existential despair. My favorite book of the Bible is Ecclesiastes. Uh. <laughs> I love it. I don't. I don't like it for the reason I think you like it. it but tell me why you that's like it. Me. Everything is meaningless. <laughs> meaningless. <Yeah. laughs> meaningless. Rob, Rob, Rob's tour. Have you got to see Rob's tour? No, no. Uh, oh, it's, it's fantastic because it's on the book of Ecclesiastes. Except Rob does the thing that I ultimately do after the existential rage. Uh, I come down to, so, so what do we do with this, right? Well, eat, drink, and be merry. You know? <laughs> that's, that's what I'm going to try to do. Yeah. And there are no answers, and that's okay. I don't believe in blessings, you know, not from God. People bless me all the time. Right. But when, when people say, God blessed me with, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. It can't operate like that. I see that in Ecclesiastes. I love his pessimism. I love his bitterness that nothing makes sense. The race isn't won by the swift. I see good, righteous people suffer. I see horrible people prosper. All those kind of things, which I do. It's something that I, I'm always battling because it can become, obviously, a, a trigger. I can get in my depression. I get very dark. I can get very dark about life and, and everything. And, and I mean, even to the point of like self-harming, I, get, I can get very dark when I'm, when I'm in one of those modes. But I do appreciate that book particularly because of its ending. And I'm not talking about the fake ending. There's an extra ending at the end of it. But as the book it actually concludes by itself, it comes to some pretty profound conclusions on how to do life. Yeah. Outside of like the little fake ending they put on where somebody had to fix it. You know? <laughs> sure. But tell me, tell me your, your take on it. Well, no, I, so I don't like it because of because of my struggles with depression. Um, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, because like everything is meaningless, and yeah. I'm like, oh man, I can only read that so many times. Right, but so Ivan, absolutely. There's a uh, a meditation that uh, a guided meditation that I've done that is vapor by the liturgists, where it quotes about you know meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. I've started using the meaninglessness of everything to help me whenever I'm overwhelmed with like anxiety, overwhelmed with like financial stress, overwhelmed with depression, the meaningless of it all. But I, I have to work really hard to keep it in check because for me. It can easily push me the wrong direction. Got to see when it comes uh, available, and it will be, because I think his tour is just ending now. I'm actually featured in this tour. Yeah. I'm, one of, I'm one of his subjects in it. He throws this big picture on the screen of me smoking a cigar in my backyard. It's freaking <laughs> hilarious, right? It's hilarious. But anyways, 
but it's on Ecclesiastes. And Rob just crushes it because basically saying what you're saying. Rob would say, the guy is obviously meaningless. He's, life is a mist. And he keeps squirting this mist in the air. It's really, really great how he does that. And he's depressed. And his take on that is like, when you meet somebody that thinks everything's shit in the world, his, his take is like the, the writer is saying, you don't even know how shitty it is. Mm. It's so much worse than you think it is. Yeah. But because of that, alongside that, you got to see the beauty that flows right next to it. Yeah. You got to see the beauty. It is bad. It's worse. Mm. So now go out and love somebody. Yeah. So now go out and, and fix something. Yeah. It. Now, now go and be a solution somewhere. And that's where when I swing to the other side of my depression, I'm like, oh, it's good to be alive. Yeah. It's good to help somebody. I uh, I experienced that uh, two months two ish months ago. I was sitting on my couch. I had this moment of just incredible sobriety, incredible hope, incredible health, incredible joy and peace, and all this goodness. As I'm sitting on my couch, just relaxing uh, on my lunch break for work, and it was just the most beautiful moment that I've ever had. And I just broke down weeping. I talked to a friend of mine and spent uh, 15 minutes just like ugly crying, like snot. Like if I had mascara, it would have been running. Like if I was wearing makeup, it would have been all over my face. Just ugly crying, just but, but for pure joy because I'd never experienced like that level of hope or joy or peace or a sober mind or anything like that. And it felt so good. But the first thing I wanted to do was like, even in light of the meaninglessness of everything, is it's like, I wanna make this more. I wanna make this happen more. And that's where in, in everything that happens with my deconstruction and stuff like that, there's a few anchors that still tie me to Jesus in great deal, but that's one of them. This idea of bringing what I experienced, that moment of heaven, that interaction of the divine, bringing that down to earth for other people to share, because if, nothing else getting to have that moment that no one can take that like you know if there is a devil he can't take it if uh you know god can't take it won't take it whatever you, however you want to phrase that but there's this moment that like no one can take and you can have for the rest of your existence and I, you want to make that and bring that down to more places so yeah beautiful that that's i think what the celtic ancients used to call a thin moment and that's why i could never ever be i could never ever be an atheist mm. that's impossible for me that would be as dishonest as being a fundamentalist <laughs> be it, it would be because there is so much mystery in life yes. and in that mystery from the horrible is also the beautiful yeah there are these moments where these epiphanies that can happen Sometimes it's out of nowhere. It could be just I'm walking on the beach with my wife or something. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's just like you gotta be freaking kidding me. Mm. You know, I'm looking out at the ocean and the the horizon and the sky and the sun setting and everything is so magic. Yeah. I mean, just so potently magical and beautiful, right alongside the ugly. And I don't have to deny the ugly, and I don't even have to chalk it up as God's fault. Probably one of the most fun things I've ever had. I had this yesterday at a time of, you know, sharing with a person that was coming to me for, it's like how God operates. You know, this person is just like, oh my God, I, my friend's kid was just kidnapped and murdered. How can God let that happen? You know, because when you grow up with a theology of God, God being omni everything, right? Yeah. Omnipotent, all powerful. Yep. Omniscient, all-knowing, sovereign, in control, as the Calvinists will tell you. There's that one thing that happens. God isn't completely in control of. You, you, you know, God becomes a real bastard. You know, you're just like, what? You know, that's just a sick, twisted God. So people get really confused when they experience something like that. And I will say, I don't think God has a bloody thing to do with it. It doesn't. God is not in the guy who jams his plate 
plane into a building and kills thousands of innocent people for his religion. You know, for me, God is in the first responders. Yes. Running up the flaming building to save somebody's life. That's that's where I see God. So there's the tragedy. And I see the worst and the best of humanity side by side. And I'm going to choose, despite the reality and the depression that people can actually do that, to also see and follow and be on that side that is connected to God in my beliefs, whatever God is. I believe, as Rob would say, that love is the most potent and most powerful thing that the universe has ever seen. Mm. Not evil, love. Yeah. And somehow it's got to win. Yeah, It's got to be on the winning yeah. end. And I think it is. Otherwise, actually, we wouldn't even exist right now. I mean, we would have killed each other off as a species long ago. And so, yeah, there's a lot of awful things that happen, but so a lot of beautiful things. My son just got back from Europe. My boys went backpacking right after my uh, youngest graduated high school. They spent six months backpacking 19 countries, Europe and Africa. That's awesome. And then, yeah, and then my youngest son after that went for himself. For like four months backpacking all by himself. No itineraries, just mom and dad going crazy. <laughs> just, we'll figure it out when we get there. My son just got back from a solo backpacking many countries. What was funny is on all of their trips, when the boys first came home together, I go, okay, we're picking you up at LAX. What's your first observation that you can tell me? I know we're going to have six months of stories to catch up on, but what's your first impression of what you just did? They said, Dad, we never had any idea how many nice people are in the mm. world. They said, we experience hospitality like you can't believe. Yeah, People just taking us in, sharing meals with us, speaking our language, not speaking our language, helping us out, going here, going there, poor people, wealthy people, everything. And every trip they took, both of them solo. It's very different, and they're not so jaded anymore because you get jaded in America. They would, they came back with that observation, too. They came back like, we had no idea how uptight being an American is until we went overseas and came back. This is really one uptight town. You know, this is, <laughs> this is a lot of uptight people, yeah. you know, because, that, you know, somebody comes over here and he's a stranger. You're not going to take him into your house. You're gonna, yeah. you know, grab your gun. Defend yourself, stand my ground. <laughs> uh, over there, they had all this hospitality. And they experienced that in Africa. They were in some of the poorest places in the world and found people with real joy in their heart and real generosity. And I've experienced that too, I'm lucky to say. I've traveled around, and that has helped me understand that. Yeah, so a lot of times I can get depressed like you do. And, and you're right, it can be real triggers of meaningless, meaningless. And if I'm on the dark side, it's not good. But I can punch through now to see that alongside the tragic and the tragedy is also the beauty and the beautiful. And, uh, and I can choose to be a part of that. Mm -hmm.